0: I've to preach again this morning, and uh, the last two weeks I've tried to have a look at um, the new year. It is a new school year, and I've been trying to just look around the theme of the gospel, what the gospel is, how the gospel is different from religion, why that should motivate us to live differently, Uh, and that's been the kind of theme that I've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Uh, Over the course of the last year or so, I've been looking at the book of James, and uh, I've been preaching a series called Dazzling Christianity, and I'm actually going to carry on this morning out of James, James chapter 4. So if you'd like to uh, turn there with me. And what I want to share this morning really does flow out of what I shared in the last couple of weeks. Um, I've called, just taken a title for this message out of the first line of chapter 4. Simply this, why do you fight and quarrel? Why do you fight and quarrel? And we're going to have a look at that this morning. But last week I had a look at the difference between religion and the gospel. And I try to point out to you that all religion, in all of its forms, tries to motivate people out of fear, out of pride, and the gospel motivates us out of love, pure love and enjoyment of who God is and who Jesus is. It's a profoundly different motivation in our lives. And we don't want to be motivated in anything that we do out of religion. We want to be motivated in everything that we do out of love for Jesus. And that's a primary difference between legalistic Christianity and gospel-centered Grace-enabled Christianity. And I want to live out of a place of grace and freedom. I don't want to live out of a place of people telling me that I need to do stuff. I want to do stuff because I love Jesus. It's a very different thing, all right? And so I had a look and said, well, how, why are people, how, what motivates people to be generous? What mo- motivates people to be honest? What motivates people to honor each other? And I had a look... There's an American evangelist called Jonathan Edwards and he had a look at that very thing and he came to the conclusion that there's two, he called it common virtue on the one hand and he called it true virtue on the other. And he said common virtue, he said basically people are motivated to be honest and generous because basically we are proud people and we don't want to be found out. We're honest because we don't want to get caught. He said basically that's what people are motivated by. And he said that's common virtue and that God uses common virtue to restrain the world from evil. The problem is that that doesn't change your heart. It only restrains you. It doesn't change you. And so... The second thing he said is that true virtue is that which motivates you from the inside, and true virtue is that thing that only comes when you've had a revelation of the grace of God in your own life, and when you're motivated because you love Jesus and you want to honor Him in all things, your life simply changes from the inside out. And that's a different thing. We don't want to just live from a place of pride and fear. We want to live from a place of love and of our hearts being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I concluded, I said this, that our desire as a leadership team is that this church would, be, would continue to learn, would continue to be on this journey, this process, together with God, we would continue to learn what it means to live out of the freedom of the gospel, motivated by love for Jesus, motivated with love for His people, walking by the Spirit, and as we do that, throwing off every religious impulse that we have, and simply walking by the Spirit. And so, I would like to continue with that in mind, looking at James chapter 4, and we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at these verses. But this morning, I'm just going to look at the first one. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights amongst you? Remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. He says, what causes fights, what quarrels causes quarrels amongst you in the church? Is it not this, that your passion... Is at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, and you spend it on your own passion. The Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come this morning. And Lord, I pray that you'd change our hearts. I thank you for your presence here, and I ask God that you'd come. I thank you for the power of your words. I thank you that your word transforms us. It washes us. It helps us to become more and more like Jesus. So Lord, we just simply pray that you would come and transform us this morning from the inside out. That we would allow your word to transform us. And God, we want to become more like Jesus. And everything in us wants to become like Jesus. But Lord, our flesh is so weak. And so we ask that you would help us this morning. To hear honestly and those things that you challenge us with that we would change those things, that we can start living in an amazing way that impacts other people, and we trust you for that in Jesus' name. I found uh, preaching through this book very challenging. Uh, every chapter seems to get more challenging, <laughs> and so here, at chapter four, the challenge doesn't stop; the challenge carries on. And uh, we've had a look in the first three chapters just to remind you. Um, one of the themes that James is picking up on here. It's the theme of true spirituality. Remember, he said this is what true spirituality is. And uh, he introduced in chapter one, he said we need to control our tongue. And then he develops that in chapter three. So, one of the themes of true spirituality is how you speak, shows you whether you're a spiritual person or not. The second thing he introduced in chapter one, verse 27, was a love for the poor and a care and concern that is unselfish, that gives itself for other people. And he continues exploring that theme in chapter two. And thirdly, He said, true spirituality is by keeping yourself unstained from the world. That there is a difference in how you live. That's true spirituality. It's not just saying that you're saved and then kind of living just like the world lives. That's not true spirituality at all. And so he says, surely if we are changed from the inside, it affects how we live. And people should see that. And so he encouraged us. James encouraged us. Remember, he said, live by the royal law. What is the royal law? The golden rule. Simply love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what he's continued to explore here. And so, he zeroes in on this thing of passions. He he talks about our passions, and at the same time, he links it to God's moral law. All right? And what James is saying, really, in this portion, he's saying, the worst thing that can be said about a Christian is that his lifestyle is so bad that even the law points it out to him. That's what he's saying. We're not judged by the law, but he's saying sometimes as Christians, if our lifestyle is so bad, we live under the grace of God. We're called to live in a much higher uh, calling under the grace of God. But sometimes the lifestyle is so bad that even the law can point it out to us. And that's why he uses the words like covet, which is a reference to the law. And so, James says, That if we live by the royal law, if we live with this in our hearts, that we love people, we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we are in no danger of breaking the moral law. This is the great truth of the Christian faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 13 13 verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. That's what he says, and then he defines it further. He says, For the one who loves those who love each other have fulfilled the law. What are you saying? If we simply love each other, we automatically fulfill the moral law. We fulfill the Ten Commandments. Paul says it again in Galatians. He says in verse 14 of chapter 5, the whole law, all of the Mosaic law, is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the gospel. We were presenting what we believe as a church, to some new new people in the church uh, yesterday. And I want to say to you, the gospel is actually incredibly simple. And we try to make it quite complicated. The gospel is incredibly simple. It's about loving God and loving each other. That's it. And so what the gospel says is this. It's impossible to love Jesus with all of your heart. It's impossible to be filled with the Spirit and break the moral law of God at the same time impossible. If you are truly loving God with all of your heart, it is impossible to break the Ten Commandments. That's what James is saying. Because why, Galatians tells us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, perseverance, long-suffering, all these things. If those are active in our lives, it is impossible to break the moral law. If you are loving people, it's impossible to murder someone else. If you are loving your wife with all your heart, it is impossible to have an affair with somebody else. Impossible. And so James is writing to these Jewish Christians, and he's upset. He's upset because he uses this language. He says, you have committed murder in your hearts. And why is he saying that? Because, remember, they were discriminating against the rich and the poor. They were welcoming the rich into their meetings, and they were saying to the poor, we don't want you to sit there, now, that's our special seat for the rich people, you sit over there, poor people. You sit at the back. And he's angry. He's saying, you are showing discrimination in the church, and he has to point that out to them. And he says, even the Ten Commandments show you that you are not living by grace. That's what he's trying to say. Even under the law, you are guilty of these things. And so he uses this language. He carries on. He says, you covet and you cannot have, so you fight and you quarrel. And he's pointing in that little phrase, he's pointing to the heart of the problem. He's not pointing them to the moral law as their code of conduct. He's not saying, live by the law. What he is saying is, uh, let me just define that for you. Because when Paul writes to Timothy, remember he says this. He says, the law is not given for those that are saved, the righteous. It's given for the unrighteous. The law is given for those that are not saved. 1 Timothy 9, verse 10. He says, The law is not laid down for the just, for those that are saved, but for the lawless, those who are not saved, for the disobedient, for ungodly people and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, they're sexually immoral, etc., etc. He defines it. So he's not saying we are under the law. He's just saying these guys have behaved so badly in the church that even the law had found them out. That's what do you say? And this, I've got five points this morning. Here's my first one. This is, the, this is the problem with those early Jewish believers. They simply thought they were okay. That's what they thought. They thought they were okay. That was the real problem. The real problem was that they didn't think, they didn't understand that discriminating between rich and poor in the church, they didn't even see it as a problem. That's what James is saying. saying so you don't even see it as a problem. Actually, it's a big problem. And you can't even see it as a problem. And I said last week that as Christians we are not under the moral law as a system to save us. We are under the law of love. We are under the law of Christ. This is what I want to say to you this morning. Living under the law of love is far more demanding and challenging than living under the moral law. Why do I say that? Well, this is what we, we, we need to ask God to give us revelation of. It's easier to live with this as a man. The, more, the law says, do not commit adultery. I have not committed adultery with Helen, ever. As, I've never looked at another woman. But this is the thing. what The law says, don't commit adultery. Grace says, when you look at someone with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her already. What is more difficult? What requires more of God's spirit in your life? Simply walking around saying, I have never committed adultery. Look at me. I'm I'm proud. I haven't committed adultery. And yet at the same time, you can live like that and there can be a war in your heart. There can be lust and passion in your heart all the time that you never deal with. It's not the same thing. Hear what I'm saying? Our hearts need to be changed. That's That's what James is saying. And Paul says this in Galatians 5, he says, I will say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the the desires of your flesh. He says, if you're walking by the Holy Spirit, if you are loving as Christ intends you to love, if you're giving yourself to your your friends and your family and the community, the way that God wants you, you will automatically not fulfill the, the, the desires of the flesh. I've been involved in church and leadership for 20 years. I want to say this to you, with, with just, uh, not with any sense of uh, condemnation, but it's my experience in the ministry that when people are outwardly legalistic, when they're outwardly legalistic, and when they put emphasis on rules and put emphasis on, oh, we don't like those people, they dress funny. Or, we don't like that people, look how long that guy's hair is. There's always an, there's always an inward sin that they are covering up. Always, the majority of the time. Outward legalism is often there to push away so that then not, you can't see the sin in the person. I want to give you an example. This other church that I was a part of, there was this older gentleman who was incredibly religious. And he would pray the loudest in the meetings. And when it was time to, to have a, a, He was always the first one flat on his face. And then he, there were some young guys on the eldership and he came to these guys on the eldership and said, you guys, you are young and you don't have any experience in the kingdom, you need people like me to speak into your lives. And uh, that's true. We always need other people. Over a period of time, this this was the great, (laughs) this incredible thing. He had been seducing a young woman in the prayer meeting while he was praying like this. And then the, the eldership team had to deal with that. You think it can't happen in churches? It happens in churches. See, the law blinds us. The law says we're okay. The law says as long as you're not committing adultery, you're okay. Don't have to deal with anything else. Grace says, uh uh-uh, there's something infinitely higher that God's calling you to do. And it's about your heart. It's about your motivation. It's about what you live with. It's about what you're motivated by. It takes us far beyond the moral law. You know, true godliness... Is never achieved by being under the law. It's never achieved by following rules. Living by rules, you know what living by rules does? It makes you a legalist. It makes you a rule keeper. I want to say this to you. I've never ever met a happy, fulfilled, content legalist. Never. Legalists are always grouchy. They are long faced. They lack joy. They're always pointing other people's faults out. That's how you know that you're under the law. If you can never be happy and joyful and liberated, you must ask some questions. God, am I really under your grace or am I under the law? I've never met a happy legalist. Just grouchy, unjoyful, unpeaceful people. And sometimes the church can be full of those kind of people. So James is making a very simple point. He's saying you can live by the outward law, You can live outwardly clean, you can put on this front, you can live outwardly clean, but inwardly, in your heart, you are a rebel to the law that God calls us to, the law of love. You can be outwardly this moral person, and inwardly a rebel and not loving people. You see, a person like that thinks that there's no problem. That's what I've tried to say. Legalistic people think they're okay. That's the real cancer. That's the real thing that God has to put his sword into our hearts and cut out of our hearts because if we don't, if we don't get past that point of thinking we're okay, we're actually saying we don't need a savior. We don't need Jesus. We actually can do this on our own. We're actually okay. And how many times have you heard people say, no, I don't, you know, the Christian faith's okay, but you know, I'm a good person. What's it really saying? That phrase says, I don't need a Savior. I can do this on my own. I'm actually okay. And you see, as Christians, those of us that are saved, we are also in danger of developing that same attitude. It's called self-righteousness. And that's how we can, at the same time, we can be exactly the same as people that are not saved. We can be saying, well, actually, I'm self-righteous. I'm living by rules, even though outwardly I'm not showing people. i actually got this inward code of conduct that I live by, and as as long as I fulfill my own code of conduct, I'm okay. Actually, we're not. We need Jesus. We need Jesus desperately. More and more, as I understand the gospel of, of Christ, I know in my own life, I have to realign my heart every single day the fact that I need Jesus in my life. I need the cross in my life every single day to love my wife, love my kids. I need Jesus. Martin Luther said this. I tweeted to some of you this week. He said, I fear my own heart more than any pope or any cardinal. You get what he's saying? I fear my own heart more than any pope, more than any legal system, more than any religious institution. I fear my own heart more than any of those. That's beginning to understand and be truly humble when you know your own heart is wicked above all things. And so, we can live this kind of outwardly uh, moral life and inwardly at the same time carry anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and bear grudges against other people. We can be all aligned in our doctrine, but inwardly not following the law of love, which is what Christ calls us to. Are you hearing me this morning? And so these people that James is writing to, they were all sound in their doctrine. They thought they were okay, but they were smug. They were complacent. They were middle class. They were moral. They were all good on the outside, and they were completely dead on the inside. That's the problem. So the first thing, the law blinds us. says we're okay. We don't need to deal with anything. Secondly, the law hides our ineffectiveness. What do I mean by that? Well, when James asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you, he's asking something that's completely relevant. And I'm not saying that the church is constantly in a a state of fighting. I'm not saying that at all. But there are times where churches argue. People in the church argue. And so there's this clique doesn't like that clique, and this group doesn't like that group, and they stop talking to each other. And there's sometimes arguing and fighting. You know what the greatest tragedy of all of that is? Don't expect the Holy Spirit to come down when that's happening in the church. It can never happen. No, why? God commands His blessing on brothers whose hearts love each other. we are prepared to say, no, I'm going to work through all of that stuff. I'm going to choose to love you because I want the Spirit of God to come down in this place. And it's a sad sickness that can be in churches. And it produces churches that are led by pastors who secretly wish they had another job. Yeah? I'm telling you that because I've been there. Leading a church, but secretly longing for another job. God, get me out of here. This is just too difficult. Yeah? (laughs) It leads to a leadership team of elders and deacons who wish they could really just stay at home and not come to church on the Sunday, but because they're leading, they have to be there. <laughs> it leads to demoralized children's workers and worship leaders who really want to give up, but there's so few people, that, few people that really want to help that they have to just do it anyway. That's the kind, I don't want to ever be part of a church like that. Do you? No, God forbid that we ever get to that place. And here, James is pointing us to the problem. In this one little verse, he's saying, the heart of this kind of sickness that grips churches is this. When we are not being what God intended us to be, salt and light, when we are not outward focused, when we're not looking at the lost to see them get saved, if we start getting introverted as a church, what starts to happen? We start to fight with each other and pick quarrels with each other and I don't like your hair, and I don't like your dress, and I don't like you, and I don't like you, and and it's just a mess. No. When we are outward focused, when we are being evangelistic, when we are seeing that the highest call that God has for us is to preach the gospel and to see the lost impacted and embraced and, and many saved into the kingdom... That's when we are being what we were created to be. That's what we are being when we are tended to be That what God created us to be, and we start to be effective. You still with me? Okay, the third point. Point number four, whatever it is. Living by rules justifies our fighting. Living by rules justifies our fighting with each other. James says the real cause of quarrels of fights is our own passion. He uses that word, passion. It's our own desire. And we, we don't like that. <laughs> we don't like it. We, 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 generally, all of us like to blame other things, right, when we have a problem. When things are tough in our lives, we blame other things. So we say things like, it's really the stress of the economy that's getting me down right now. That's why I'm a bit grouchy. It's the economy. The economy. It's that I don't have a good job. That's why I'm stressed. Or it's my work situation. Or it's, uh, it's those people. You know, those people, they just don't understand me. It's like, no one understands me. (laughs) It's everyone else's fault. Start thinking like that, you're going backwards. The real problem, James says, is our own pleasure. Saying that's what causes fights is our own pleasure, our own desire, selfish desire to have what we want. That's what causes fights. And it's the same word, this word passion, that James uses, Jesus uses in Luke's gospel, in the parable of the sower. Remember Luke 18, 14, where he talks about seed being sown. And he comes to the end of that uh, description, he says, As for the seed that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and the pleasures, it's the same word, pleasures, the passions of life, the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. It's exactly the same word. Peter uses the same word in 2 Peter 2 verse 13. It says, they suffer wrong as wages for their wrong wrongdoing. They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, etc., etc. And here he's talking about sensual pleasure, people who just give themselves for living for their, their own sensual fulfillment. So, what James is saying is not, it's not a complimentary thing. What Peter is saying is not a complimentary thing. What Jesus is saying is not a complimentary thing. He's saying the real problem is that you are living for your own pleasure, you are living for yourself, you are living selfishly. Your world is just about you. Can I be quite strong? If I'm not being strong enough, really, I think that really is the spirit of the Antichrist, selfishness. I really think it is. All that is anti-God, because <laughs> God is not a God who's selfish. God is a God of love, and love, by definition, gives itself away. It, it wants to give itself for other people. It wants to love other people. It wants to give what, it's, what it has so it can be a blessing. Everything that is anti-God is selfish. The devil wanted. Satan wanted glory for him. Self. He was the worship leader. He wanted glory for himself. The root of all that is ungodly is selfishness. If we could just realize that, I think we would start living differently. So he's saying to these Christians, James, he's saying the real problem, guys, is you're living for yourself. Christ has brought this amazing freedom into your life that you, you are free, that you are no longer condemned under the law, and you are using that freedom to live for yourself, not to live for each other. And so, because they're living for themselves, and are not seeing anyone else changed, not seeing anyone transformed by the power of the gospel, and so they start to fight each other. You know, I've seen this over and over, that sometimes people don't like conflict, so instead of dealing with the issue, they simply leave the church community because they, it's easier to do that than to actually work through the problem. And Paul... Never ever suggests that as something that we should aspire to in the church. In fact, if you look at there was a problem in Philippi, the people fighting in the church in Philippi, and in Philippians 4, verse 2, there's it's two ladies that are fighting in the church. <laughs> and Paul simply says this to him: he says, I entreat, I plead with you. I'm asking you, please, Eudishia and Sinche are their names. I entreat you, I plead with you. Agree with each other in God. That's all he does. It doesn't say, leave, sort it out. No, he says, no, here, no, yeah, no I just plead with you, come on, in Christ, in the gospel, sort it out. <laughs> and so, quarrels in churches, quarrels between spouses, between parents and children, all stem from this passion. This desire to have our own passions fulfilled. And I'm not talking about sexual desire. I'm talking about the passion that comes from a, in a Christian's life who hasn't come to terms with themselves, hasn't come to terms with the grudges that they bear, hasn't come to terms with their jealousy, with their own heart, with their selfishness, hasn't come to terms with that. And so they blame outward things. They live a, an outwardly moral life, but inwardly are at war with the love of Jesus in their lives. And Paul, Paul's quite a strong guy. He doesn't mince words. Paul says, I want you to kill some things in your life. He uses that language. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death. Speaking to the church, Colossian church. Put to death these things in your life. What do you put to death in your life? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, selfishness, evil desire, covetousness, having what other people have. All these things are idolatry. Put them to death in your life by the power of the Spirit. He doesn't say fight with each other. He doesn't say point out other people's selfishness. He says you put to death, Christian, in your own life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, all sexual, or merit, all lustful thinking, all covetousness, wishing you had more money and you were like that person, wishing you were more gifted than you are, whatever it is, you put that all to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, let the sword go through your own heart and don't worry about anyone else. It's simply what I'm trying to say this morning, summed up in this phrase. It's possible to be outwardly moral and inwardly rotten. Didn't Jesus say that to the religious people of the day? He said, you all, you Pharisees, you ones who want to live by rules, you are all on the outside, you are all fixed up, you're whitewashed, and in the inside you smell like a fart. That's what he did say. Smell like a fart, you smell like what comes from the inside of a man's stomach. What comes from the inside of a man's stomach? Who are you fooling? It's easier to keep the moral law than it is to live a life of love. You know the tragedy is when we start fighting in the church, we actually abort the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is that we're all desperately in need of a savior and that's the good news that we take. And when we're so fighting with each other, we bought the good news, the proclamation of the good news and who rejoices more than anyone else? The devil. I'm finishing now. Remember what Jesus said when he had that amazing sermon that he preached on the mount. He said this. He said, The root of our passion is in the parts of our body. Remember? He says he uses that phrase. In the Greek word there is melos. And so in Matthew 5, he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus gives them the law. He gives them the law. He says, okay, remember, according to the law, you must not commit adultery. But I say to you, and you know it well, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. So he's saying, I'm calling you to grace I'm calling you to something that's much higher than just living by a very basic rule. I'm calling you to love people and honor people for who they are without taking advantage of them. This is what grace calls you to. Not selfish fulfillment of your own lusts, but loving someone because they're a daughter in Christ. And then he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. And we don't like that. We think uh, Jesus was just... um, you was know, just being a bit strong. No, no, he wasn't. Your eye causes you to sin, take it out. Chop your hand off if it causes you to sin. Why? Because it's better that you go to heaven without an arm and without an eye, than you, you lose your soul. What is he actually saying? He's saying, remember this, that we are all part of the body of Christ, and we all make up the body of Christ, and we all have sp- parts, spiritual parts that make us up as people. And he's saying this, you are responsible as a Christian to deal with that part of you that is the, It's making your life be at war with the mind of Christ in your life. That's what he's saying. If there's something in you that is warring against the gospel, cut it out. Deal with it radically. It's going to stop you growing as a Christian. It's going to stop you being a blessing to other people. Deal with that thing. Okay, I need to relax. Take a deep breath. Take some water. I want to just give you three steps that I trust will be helpful to dealing with your own desire in your life, your own selfishness, my selfishness. And these are incredibly simple. All right? So, it's not like it's going to be, going to be simple. That's the first thing. Believe that you can resist. Believe that you can resist. You've got to have a conviction that your passion, your lust, can be brought under control. I have to be a, have a conviction that my mouth can be brought under control. As a dad, I have to be, have a conviction that my selfish desire for the remote control can be brought under control. I've noticed with our boys, they always want the remote control. <laughs> Not you, Matt, Jesse, he wants, he wants the remote control all the time. Why do I say that? Because if we don't have that conviction, then we've got a really floppy will, isn't it? Uh, it's just too hard. And so we have these big, strong men with incredibly floppy little wills. I'm old, masculine and strong, and you've got a floppy little will. Not a nice picture. It's a true picture. Masquerading, all this kind of, I'm the big guy, and I can't even control myself. So, Jesus promises us this. Paul says in one Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. This is what people think. It's this is just my problem. No one else in the world has ever had a problem about struggling with to overcome pornography. It's, just, it's uh, no, no one else. No, it says no one has any, faced a temptation that all of us haven't had to deal with. All of us have those desires in our heart. Jesus says this, God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Don't make excuses. By the power of the Spirit, say, I can take control of this thing. By God's power in me, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me. I can say no. And so when Paul encourages us to put to death these things in our lives, he's not mocking us. He's not not saying it to have a laugh. He's saying it because it is possible. Okay? He's encouraging us to lay hold of the Holy Spirit in our lives and to see that thing done. So, you can do it, (laughs) alright? Have that conviction that you can resist. Secondly, Desire to please Christ, and you can say, oh that 's very spiritual i don 't mean to, I mean it, I, I mean it to be incredibly practical. What I mean is this: if the highest desire of our hearts is to love Jesus, if the highest desire of our hearts is to live to please him, if the highest desire in our hearts is friendship with Christ, if that truly is the highest desire of our hearts, every other desire every other thought, every other temptation can be put to death by that one desire to love Jesus with everything that we have. To honor Him above everything. The great motivator and the Holy Spirit in us makes it possible. And thirdly, the other third step, just say no. I told you it was going to be simple. Just say, no. Refuse to give the upper hand to anything in your mind that exalts itself above the name of Jesus. All right? We're trying to help our boys. As teenagers. So many things that are presented to them. We're trying to say this. Guys, in your mind, when you think that thing, take it captive immediately. Say, no, I refuse to dwell on that, Lord. I refuse to dwell on that image in my mind. I refuse to dwell on that thought because when you dwell on it, what does it do? It gives birth to something in your heart and then you act on it. Refuse to dwell on it. Say, no! (laughs) And when we do that, what happens? The temptation is cut off. The level of suggestion is cut off. I want to say to you, this Works. Why can I say that to you? Because I know it works for me. You think I don't get tempted. You think I don't have to struggle with these things. You think that preachers somehow don't have these issues in their lives. So to conclude, this really is our greatest challenge. I had a message a couple of months ago called The Greatest Challenge. It's a summary of what I said all those months ago. The greatest challenge that we have as Christians is to live with hearts that truly love Jesus, that truly love Him, that truly love His law. Remember I told you last week, we have this, we said to you last week, we have the sim, simultaneous thing as, things as two things as Christians. We are called to love, Paul says, he loves the law of God, and he loves... The law. He meditates on a day or night. He's he's not saying he's looking to the law to save him because he knows it can't. But the law shows us something about who God is. It shows us what God likes, what God doesn't like. So Paul says, I love the law. And simultaneously he knows that he's not under the law. He's not condemned by the law. But he loves the law because it shows him what Jesus is like. And so that's the greatest change that we have. Not to live outward moral lives but to live inwardly from a place that truly we are motivated by love for Jesus. And that, disease, that that love, if we are brave enough to deal with our own hearts, that love will overcome every other thing. We just have to be brave enough to admit there's a problem and let the Holy Spirit deal with it. And we can bring our passion under control. We can not live selfish lives. We can start living for others, all that is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the challenge. I want to say to you, if we start living like that, we will truly demonstrate a Christianity to the world that this generation has not yet seen. If we live like this, there will be revival. <laughs> Why? Because our desire to please Jesus will be greater than our anger. Our desire to please Jesus will be greater than our desire for revenge. Our desire to please Jesus will be greater than our selfish desire. Our desire to think pure thoughts will be the greatest desire of our hearts, not to think lustful thoughts. Then we are salt. Then we are light. Then we are becoming what God intended us to be. So I don't stand here this morning saying that I don't have any problems in my life. I've got problems just like you have. I have desires just like you have. I have things that I need to control just like you have things that you need to control. Our point is, we have things controlling us that shouldn't be controlling us. Right? We have the mind of Christ. Our point is, what is God asking you to deal with this morning in your life? It's not going to be the same as the thing for me. But what is God asking you to deal with? I'm not asking you to ask anyone else. You just now ask yourself. Just you and God. Jesus, what are you saying to me this morning? What are you putting your finger in my life and saying, I want you to change that one thing. What is this? And I want to say to you that I know the power of the Holy Spirit is here, that Jesus loves you and he loves me, that he doesn't point out things to condemn us. He points out things to set us free, that we don't live from a place of bondage and fear, but we live from a place of liberty and freedom. That's why Jesus wants to set us free. And he wants to bring freedom. And I'm just simply asking you this morning, what does God want you to bring to him that he can deal with this morning? All right? So we're going to take a moment. I just want to ask you to close your eyes. It's not a time for anyone else looking into your life. You just let God speak to you right now. Let you, I don't want to, I, can we also not be all introverted and kind of intense about it as well? Because I don't think that's helpful. But just what is the thing that God's saying to you? Why don't you just ask him right now about the power of his spirit to come and help you deal with that thing. Right? And then we'll see what happens from there.